Hello, I'm Nick Baker, and this is the UK Wildlife Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips. And I'm Victoria Hillman. And this week, we're doing one of our species specials, and it's on the wasp spider. But when it gets stuck straight in, they're our largest orb weaver spider. Now, the female can be 15 millimetres long. Our body length, obviously the legs are much larger than that. The male's much smaller, only up to 4 millimetres. And they build your typical orb weaver web. So you know like your garden spider you find around about this time of year, actually. It's like that, but the web usually has sort of a zigzag pattern at the top, which we'll talk more about later. The spider itself... Certainly the female is very distinctive. With bright colours, they've got bands or stripes of black, yellow and white, which gives them their wasp spider name. The male, which is much less often seen, usually seen hanging around the female's web, if at all, is much smaller, like I've said, with just a yellowy-brown abdomen, so they don't have the stripes. Now, when you're looking for these guys, you tend to find them in sort of meadows and rough grassland. They're quite often found on brownfield sites or abandoned sites where the grass is growing quite long. Although you can find them in various low-level vegetation, so sort of sometimes among sedges and stuff in marshy areas. Uh, And I've found them in nettle beds, certainly when they're sort of bordering the more typical meadows. The spiderlings emerge from the egg cocoon in spring, and when they come out of this egg sac or cocoon they disperse so they either crawl around or do something that a lot of spiders do which is ballooning and this is basically where they get a long line of silt that goes right up into the air so many many times their body length and then they catch as a breeze and they basically float or fly off and then drop down wherever they land basically which is a bit of a high risk strategy to some degree because quite often they'll land somewhere that isn't suitable of course they can balloon again but you tend to find them when they reach adulthood which is generally about late july they're about now late august but yeah, they start to peter out September and tend to die by October. Now, in some areas, you can get quite big aggregations of them. Uh, I know that they can get quite a few hundred of them at Rain and Marshes, a local site to me. And reading round, they can occur at densities of one per three square metres to one per square metre, with some recordings of up to six per square metre, which is quite dense think how big these spiders are. But usually when they get that high, you'll find the next year the population will collapse, and then so you get all these peaks and troughs in the population. But despite all these high density and the bright colours, they can actually be quite hard to spot. So when you get one in the open, you'll be like, whoa, what's that? But you really have to get your eye in, and it's one of those things where you'll see one, and then you'll look a little bit over there and there'll be another one and then there's another one and there's another one and there's another one. And I quite often find them where someone's walked across a meadow leaving these little gaps in the grass, like foot-sized gaps where they've trampled the grass slightly. And you quite often get them in there because obviously that gives them space to build their web. So distribution of these spiders, but it was first recorded in Britain in 1922 at Rye in East Sussex. And for many years seemed to be restricted to a few areas close to the south coast in Sussex, Kent, Hampshire and Dorset. Since the 1970s, the spider has increased its range, spreading inland from a number of its coastal locations. And I know now we have a couple of really good populations in Somerset as well. Uh, there's actually one not too far from me. And I picked up something a couple of weeks ago. They've been seen on the outskirts of Bath, which is quite exciting. It has been suggested it was introduced by man, but the general consensus is it's it was a native colonisation by spiderlings ballooning from main, mainland Europe. I think that's probably something that's still up for debate, Neil. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, There was a big debate on Twitter, but most people seem to think it's native. So, Yeah. From the 1970s, it has spread inland and it's found along 
south coast in southwest England, around the Severn Estuary, south of a line from Hampshire to the Wash Estuary, but it's now spreading into the Midlands and northwards. And I think we'll see that continuing to spread northwards as our climate changes as well. So I think, you know, we'll, we'll see that progressively get further and further north. Outside the UK, it's actually found across Europe, uh, right up to Sweden and Norway, where it's also spreading northwards and then down to kind of North Africa into Asia and the Azores. So it's definitely one that is spreading. I think I first saw them in Somerset probably about six or seven years ago now. You know, there are peaks and troughs. Some years it's good years, some years it's bad years. But it's the first year I've heard of one being in this part of Somerset, you know, because we're, we're kind of close to the Wiltshire border here. So they're definitely on the move. In terms of prey, they hunt in that sort of stereotypical spider fashion, hanging in the middle of the web, head down. And as I said, the web is situated in a gap in the grass or plants where they built their web in. And they'll sit in this web, waiting for the prey to hit the web, make some vibrations and they'll rush over to it and subdue it and the prey is generally grasshoppers there's a paper by bush et al in 2008 that showed that 43 percent of the prey in their study was orphoterans and orphotera is grasshoppers crickets nifella in 2012 did a study on the prey composition exactly and they found 90 percent was orphotera and Hymenoptera, and Hymenoptera is bees and wasps. Looking through the details of the paper, it showed that the bees and wasps was actually um, apidae, which is bees. Um, but there's also quite a bit of butterflies and moths in there, some true bugs, the heteroterans, and there's even quite a reasonable percentage of other orb weaver spiders. So whether or not that would be males of uh, wasp spiders, which we'll come to later, or other species, they didn't say. There's some interesting stats that the adult female, on average, would eat 90 milligrams of prey, which is roughly equal to a worker honeybee, which is quite a nice, useful size measurement there. And personally, I've seen them taking grasshoppers, wasps in their web, and I saw one a few weeks ago eating a darter dragonfly, which is pretty cool, because that's quite a big bit of prey for a spider, even of that size. That is the ones that I've seen at the particular site that I've been keeping an eye on. It is, I think I've only ever seen them with grasshoppers and crickets in their webs. But it's also grasshopper and cricket numbers at that site are really quite high as well. So I think they've they've almost specialised a little bit in those. I don't think I've ever seen them with anything else in their webs. It's yeah. interesting. It does seem that that is their, their main source of prey is going to be grasshoppers. And I don't know if you found it, it's quite hard to not see them eating grasshoppers because as you walk towards their web, no matter how careful you are, you usually flush a few grasshoppers and inevitably... Straight into the web. Straight into the web. <laughs> The reason they can tackle such large prey, and prey like bees and wasps, which have stings, obviously, which could kill a spider, is they have really long legs, which they can use to wrap up the prey with their silk. So if you ever do see one of these, and a grasshopper jumps in the web, or a bee flies into it while you're there, you'll see they rush out, and they very, very quickly start wrapping it up in silk, much quicker than you see a garden spider or something like that do it. And it's lots of silk. It's really thick, like loads of strands coming out, and they wrap it really quickly. And the long legs mean that the prey gets nowhere near the body, so they can't injure or sting the spider. And then once this prey's trapped in this silk, they'll then go in and bite it with their fangs. And like most spiders, the fangs contain venom which not only paralyzes or kills the prey it also starts to digest it from the inside and liquefy it because spiders of course feed by drinking the liquefied prey and the study also stated that they can take prey up to twice their body length so that fits with the data dragonfly which would be up that maximum length there it would i mean i've seen it was a couple of years ago i think maybe just a really really favorable year for them but some of the wasp spiders were huge so yeah common data would definitely fit within that yeah when a female's fully grown and full of eggs she and prey she really can be quite sizable 
And I will just mention quickly that they can actually bite humans, but I've never met anyone that's been bitten by one. You really would have to pick one up and really threaten it and scare it to get it to bite you, I think. I've had children pick them up when they've been meadow sweeping, they've scooped one out of the web, obviously not seen the web, scooped it up in the net, and then they're holding it up and holding it and showing me on their hand. I'm like, yeah, no, I'll just take that off you just to be extra safe there. And, and they've never bitten me, and they've probably had a bit of stress from being caught in a net by that point. So I don't think they're dangerous. And yeah, like all these things, you might it might inflame slightly if you have a bit of reaction to it, but I don't think they're any threat, really. No, they're, they're, they're certainly not dangerous to us humans. Yeah, only dangerous if you're a grasshopper or a bee, it seems. Yeah, <laughs> yeah very much so. Obviously, as with all animals, they do need to reproduce. And as is the case in the majority of spiders, the male is actually much, much smaller than the female. And as Neil said earlier, you actually don't often get to see the males. They are really, really small compared to the female. And when you see a female in her web, you're drawn to her and you don't see this tiny little thing, you know, sat to one side. And... Once the males are fully grown, they'll leave their webs and they'll actually wander off in search of a female. And this is all done via pheromones, which they admit when they become mature spiders. And there was a paper by Chinta in 2010. And experiments were actually performed in a sunny meadow showing for the first time you could actually use a pheromone trap to attract spiders very much in the same way that people do use uh, pheromone traps to attract moths in the field which is quite interesting now before mating a male spider has to transfer sperm from his abdomen into his pedipalps which are small little limbs by the fangs on the head and i love referring to these as little boxing gloves because if you look closely they do look like little boxing gloves and that's actually a really good way to tell a male and a female apart for other species as well he then has to insert this palp into the female to fertilize her now when you're a tiny little male and you've got a rather large female it can be quite dangerous to do this and it's not uncommon for the female to actually eat the male cannibalism in spiders is common yeah so i did a bit of research there's a a really cool paper on all this cannibalism by from age et al in 2003 and they looked into this cannibalism happening and although the male doesn't sort of go in there to get eaten they did find that when he got eaten he ended up mating longer which um, meant it was more likely that the eggs would be fertilised by him. But what a lot of people theorise is that when the female eats the male, that then gives her more energy um, to make more eggs, so it's in the male's interest to die. But he's so small that they found there wasn't really any link between them cannibalising the male and increasing the egg numbers. So it does appear that the evolutionary advantage is simply from the male, ensuring that he's the one that fertilises the eggs uh, and the only one. Because he knows he's likely to be cannibalised, they do have a little trick they can pull, which is they can self-castrate, which other men out there are probably now wincing (laughs) along with me. And basically, he puts the pedipalp inside her and will, either from the female eating him, or will sort of let it snap off. And that will basically block her up and you might call it a pedipalp blocker. And it's actually known in the natural world as a mating plug. Yes. Yeah, not, not the other Which thing is I the more said. technical term for yeah, it. Absolutely. <laughs> but the males are not daft. Well, <laughs> maybe they are. They have uh, found ways around this. Now, when the female has just molted, she's more placid and less likely to eat them. But a study by Yule et al. in 2015 showed that Normally, if they mated with a female, only 20% of them would survive. So 80% of the males are getting eaten. So it's sort of no sex or death, basically. Uh, Tough call, really. (laughs) 
But if they wait for a female to be molting, so when they've turned into an adult, they won't molt anymore. So they go around, and if they happen to find a sub-adult that's about to molt into a female, which won't be too long, they will sit and guard her and wait. And when she molts, if they mate at that point, there's a 97% chance of survival. So uh, I prefer those odds, to be quite honest. It's also a younger female, I suppose. <laughs> which... And she's probably not mated either at that point. In nature, only 44% of the matings occurred like this. And that's because, of course, the female doesn't emit that pheromone until she's an adult, which makes it harder for her to be found. So it's not all good for the poor males. In fact, it's mostly bad. <laughs> but once the female's mated, she lay a number of cocoons. And these cocoons are quite distinctive. They're sort of a, a yellowy, creamy colour. And they're like little pots with a flat lid. And despite years of searching, I've never managed to track one down. Have you found one, Vic, ever? I actually have. Yes, I have. And I might actually be tempted to go out and see if I can find any in a couple of weeks' time. But they they are, they're very, very distinctive when you see them. It is like a little pot tucked away in the vegetation. And it looks quite straw-like. It's quite hard, but it's quite big as well. So they're, they're really distinctive. If you know where there's a population of wasp spiders, you've got a good chance of finding the egg sacs. I guess it's getting your eye in again. How big are they, Vic? The ones I've seen are pretty big. They're probably half the size of the female. You're talking about a centimetre across? At least. Now that's sort of the basics out of the way, but there's been quite a lot of research into both the body pattern and the web. The body of a wasp spider has those yellow, black and white stripes on them. And there's been quite a number of theories as to why that is and what their function is. Now, Vaclav and Prokop in 2006 compared it to a Laranoides in some experiments. Uh, so it's Laranoides cornatus, I should say, which is an orb you quite often find near water. It resembles a garden spider, but has a more sort of square pattern on it and sort of more of a dark grey-brown. And they basically anaesthetised that's anaesthetized, not euthanized, a wasp spider and one of these and, and put them in wasp spider webs. And the wasp spider web caught more prey than the Laranoides cornatus did. And they basically theorized that that was because the stripes acted as what's called disruptive camo. So it broke up their outline and the prey couldn't see them. So they would go into the web because the spider wouldn't give away its presence. But Bush et al. in 2008 challenged this they looked at it and compared it to their results which it didn't really match and they basically said that they didn't believe that and had their own theory although they do reckon the stripes on the legs may have acted as disruptive camouflage in their paper what they did is they took a bunch of wasp spiders in the wild they put a black covering over the abdomen of a third of them put a leaf to block the view to the top of the abdomen and in front of the web uh, just above the spider effectively or to the side of the spider i should say and they left some in a natural state and the color yellow is perceived by prey as similar to certain food resources such as flowers new leaves and like new plant growth and the ones without any treatment, so haven't had their abdomens blocked out in any way, catch on average twice as many prey items and approximately three times as many orphoterans, that's the grasshoppers and crickets again, as the spiders that had their abdomens blocked from the prey's view. So they suggest that is the reason they have these stripy patterns is to attract prey. They reckon their results don't match with the previous study because the previous study didn't have as many grasshopper prey items in their studies. So... Yeah, maybe that's the difference between prey. Maybe the grasshoppers are more attracted to the body than other prey. There's another theory that they're basically impersonating wasps with their coloration or possibly warning species of 
you know, their bite is what I've always thought it might be as well. But in the study we've just mentioned, the ones with their body cover didn't get predated any more than the ones with the natural coloration. So that suggests that isn't the case. And I think you're going to cover the webs now, aren't you, Vic? I am. This is actually, I think it's, it's a hotly contested theory as to to the decorations that we see in their webs. I've tried to summarise this as much as I can because there's a lot of information out there and a lot of it is actually conflicting. If you've been lucky enough to see a wasp spider in the wild, there's one thing that you might notice, not about the spider, but about the web. And when I'm talking about these webs, I'm talking purely about the females. You might notice they have a decoration in them, a zigzag decoration called a stablimentum. The majority of the females' webs will have this. It is only the females that actually decorate their webs with these zigzag patterns. But it's actually not unique to wasp spiders. So quite a lot of orb weaver spiders across the world actually do add decorations to their webs as well. And this has become a hotly debated subject as to why. Why do they add these amazing decorations? There's a lot of functional hypotheses such as mechanical, physiological and visual signaling that have been proposed. I'm going to try and kind of go into a little bit more. As I said, the decorations are only added by mature females. So the younger females don't tend to add them. It is only the mature females that do. They spend their webs fresh every morning. And this zigzag pattern is normally a vertical band underneath the centre of the web. And she will normally sit in the centre and it will zigzag down from between her front legs. And studies have shown these decorations can increase a spider's foraging efficiency by improving the attractiveness of the web. And this has been termed the prey attraction hypothesis. Basically, what it is, is researchers have suggested that flying insects may be attracted to the silk decorations in the webs as they actually reflect ultraviolet light. There's been various studies, there's Kim et al. and a few others, that says the the linear decorations showed strong positive effects on the interception of larger prey items, where those with decorations captured more than twice as many prey than webs without decorations, whereas the difference in the kind of small prey was much, much smaller between a decorated and an undecorated web. Now, the thing is, because wasp spiders are found in a broad area globally, there are variations country to country. So what a wasp spider might catch in one country is going to be different to what they might actually catch in another country. So there is that side of it. So a study carried out in Southampton showed that the spiders didn't always decorate their webs with these zigzag patterns. And this guy actually investigated whether the difference in light intensity actually caused the spider to add decoration or not. And what he found was when female spiders added the decorations, it tended to be in lower light intensities when the insects are less active. And the silk they use to spin these reflects the UV light. So in the lower light intensities, this actually may act as an attractant to the insects. There are other hypotheses as well. And one of those is that decorations might function as a mechanism to maintain high gland activity. And Neil, you touched on the silk used for the wrap attack technique that wasp spiders have, basically grab and wrap and then envenomate afterwards. The silk they use for this wrap attack is actually the same silk that's used for the decorations in the web. This is actually a cineform silk and it's produced in the cineform glands. Now bear with me, it's going to get a little bit technical. It's actually been suggested that the cineform gland activation might be an important mechanism for the wrap attack behaviour to ensure there is sufficient silk production during high prey densities 
and repeated wrapping events. So if they're catching a lot of prey, there's a lot of wrapping, they need a lot of silk to wrap up that prey. The web decorations may function as a mechanism to maintain this high gland activity to maximise the efficiency of the wrap attack strategy. And studies have shown that spiders use accumulated excess silk for building web decorations as a result of the constant, constant secretion in these glands. There are some other thoughts behind this as well, that decorations might act as camouflage. So Neil touched on the markings of the wasp spider potentially you know, acting as a camouflage. But there's thoughts that the decorations might actually contribute to that as well, because they actually hide the spider in its outline from visually hunting predators, because it kind of breaks up the area. Because it's so, when you see a female, the zigzag starts pretty much from you know, just between her front legs and then goes goes down. So it helps to break up that outline. The decorations that we see in these webs are actually first described by Simon in 1895. And he proposed that it had a function stabilising the web. And this has been further suggested that it allows the capture of larger prey. This is something that is quite hotly debated as to whether it does or doesn't actually stabilise the web and allow them to capture the grasshoppers, the crickets and even the dragonflies that we discussed earlier. There is yet another suggestion that it may act as a conspicuous signal to larger mobile animals to prevent the web from being accidentally damaged. I think in the UK, where you tend to find wasp spiders, it's probably less likely because every time that I've seen wasp spiders, they're really low to the ground. They're in those little gaps between vegetation. It's not somewhere that many kind of visually hunting predators are going to accidentally knock into because they're quite well hidden. But in other areas where wasp spiders occur, they can be a little bit higher up in the vegetation, maybe a little bit more open. So it might well act as like a visual conspicuousness to stop them from being accidentally destroyed. I think out of everything that comes together with the wasp spiders, this web design is something that is really kind of quite a hotly debated topic. And they are beautiful when you see them, these lovely zigzags that go down, and maybe it is actually a combination of all of these different uses that contribute to it. Yeah, quite often in nature you find that no one feature or adaptation has one function. You know, a bit like our nose is used for breathing and smelling. It's not optimised for either, but it works for both. It's interesting, yeah, because when I read, going back to when you've said already, is if you've got a big insect hits a web, it, it's got so much force it might bounce out again and it's meant to... But yeah, I don't know if even that's been uh, studied this, but it's meant to sort of absorb the shockwave so that it doesn't spring it out again like a trampoline, but absorbs the shock. Having seen situations where grasshoppers have actually jumped into the webs, they they do actually tend to jump more or less into where that zigzag pattern is as well. Yeah, I think that's currently the favourite. I think a favoured one. That's the impression I've got from it is that it's the... You imagine it's that zigzag acts like a grass stem or the UV sort of attracts it somehow. It's uh, in combination probably with the body. So yeah, that's the way the evidence is pointing somewhat so far, isn't it? Yeah, I think what I need to do is go and sit out at my site and just watch what happens. That sounds like a plan. Take a UV torch yeah. as well, see how much UV yeah, comes off it. That can, yeah. That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? There's one last area of study with this species. When we decided to do this, we thought there'd be a fair bit, and then we found even more. It was great. Normally, you're struggling to find anything. We had to pick the papers we wanted to talk about. And this one is to do with their northward spread, and it's linked to global warming and climate change, or whatever you want to call it. We've seen it in many species. There's lots of evidence. I mean, a lot of the time with these species, it's been hypothesised, but not 
necessarily proven. And here in the UK, we've had a number of new dragonfly species, like Southern Migrant Hawker, a number of new crickets are turning up on the south coast even. They're coming across. A few butterflies trying to come in and spreading northwards. Emperor dragonflies are spreading northwards. And of course, those bird things, spoonbills, blackwing stilts, great white egret, they're all coming over here, breeding our wetlands. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I can't resist that. Eating our frogs. Eating our frogs, which are not native anyway, in in your case, and Somerset, but never oh, mind. No. <laughs> <laughs> and a little egret's another classic one. As as it gets warmer, we're getting a lot of the, what formerly regarded as Mediterranean species. We've already mentioned the wasp spider turned up here in the 1920s, but then it really started to spread in the 1970s, and it's just going further and further north. And a similar is happening in Europe. And there's been a bit of research, and apologies if the authors are actually listening to this for all the mispronunciations we've probably made. Krenwinkel and Tolts in 2013 had a look at this northward spread, and they looked to see if it was the climate warming or the fact the spiders are adapting to a colder climate that was causing this spread and they looked at a lot of the dna and genetic in the expanding populations there was a higher genetic diversity and they've come to the conclusion that basically you had all these separate populations and as the climate warmed they managed to spread northwards and towards each other because there was more favorable habitat of the warmer temperatures and breed with each other which gave a much bigger genetic diversity and this helped the spider spread and they now appear to be appearing in climates that are cooler than they formerly lived in as well as the climate of the areas getting warmer generally they're still spreading beyond the warming if that makes sense so they think this extra genetic mix caused by climate change to start with has enabled them to spread even further north and they're turning up in sort of southern scandinavia and stuff where they weren't before and there's a similar paper from Kumschik et al. in 2011 that, again, shows... One part of the study showed that it probably is driven by temperature change, but certainly since the 1980s, they're definitely colonising colder climates than they had before. The climate warming seems to have spurred the spread, but it's not limited by temperature anymore due to them adapting to a colder climate. And that's probably true for a lot of these species that are colonising. Yeah, I mean, if you know, if the conditions are favourable and they can adapt, I think for for invertebrates as well, it's probably easier for them to adapt, you know, more quickly. Then, you know, I think you will certainly see a lot more come in, and it probably is that combination of the two. Like you said, it's you know, warmer climate, but them adapting to new environments and environments where maybe they don't actually have natural predators either. Wasp spiders will have predators in the UK, but when they first got here and as they started to spread, they they wouldn't have had the natural predators they had in mainland Europe. Crane Winkle taunts Rhoda in 2015. They summarised it quite nicely, and I'll read it directly because it's quite a nice summary. Our results thus confirm the notion that range expansions are not a simple consequence of climate change, but are accompanied by a fast genetic change and adaptations that may be fuelled through admixture between long separated lineages. So basically the different populations mixing, as we've already discussed. So it does seem to be, it's quite interesting that it is, more than one cause it's just as simple as the climate changing they're sort of using it as a model for a lot of these creatures that are expanding so I imagine some further work on other species will be done in the future yeah i think that's a good place to end our little summary of the wasp spider which is quite a fascinating and rather stunning spider i was thinking earlier today if a raft spider is the goshawk of the spider world because uh, it's just so big and damn sexy for lack of a better <laughs> word i think these guys are the kingfishers because even the birders pay attention to wasp spiders i find they're, they're a very attractive species you know they're they're certainly as 
to see one in the wild is absolutely amazing. And, you know, I think both Neil and I have been lucky enough to see them in the wild quite regularly. And once you find a good area, go back every year because they're guaranteed to be there every year. I mean, the site that I have for them close to here a couple of years ago, somebody basically wiped out the entire site. It was, I don't know what they took to it, but it devastated the entire site. And previous autumn, so kind of September time, I counted over 30 individual females plus a few egg sacs as well. And then, you know, when I went the following spring, the entire place had basically just been cleared. And I thought, that's it. I'm not, yeah, they've just wiped out the wasp spiders on this mm. site. But slowly and surely, they are actually coming back. And now they are back on that site um, in much lower numbers, unfortunately. But I think they will build up again. If you keep going back, they're quite a resilient species and they are just amazing to see if you can't find them immediately it's worth checking adjacent areas i do find on a couple of sites i go to that they'll be in one patch one year then they'll be in a slightly different patch the next year in the same meadow probably as the habitat changes through succession slightly even if you cut it every year it's going to change slightly but then other populations like one at random they're always in the same spot yeah the one here is it's it's pretty much in the same spot every year you can always i can actually walk to it and go that they're right here where they are i think it's just absolutely perfect for them um, you, you tend to find a few more. We found this year, I actually found a few more where they've spread onto an adjacent site, which is really exciting. There's also an area that has huge numbers of grasshoppers and crickets, so I think they'll do quite well there. What I haven't been to find out is can I take out a great green bush cricket? So if anyone knows or has seen it, do let us know. I'm sure they could take out a juvenile, but would they take out a full grown adult female? That would be interesting to see. That would be interesting. I've seen them take. So this site also happens to be a really good site for the rufous grasshopper which is actually one of the, our rarer grasshoppers in this country and i have seen them take out quite <laughs> a lot of rufous grasshoppers <laughs> i think we'll finish it there just a few things to add there's a few petitions that we were going to save for the next episode but there's a couple that are going to be ending soon and there's one that ends very soon it's well we'll put all the links on our twitter and facebook and stuff so just go onto our accounts and find them and i'll try and put them on the web page as well it's a stop culling beavers in scotland recently reintroduced but you can get a license to shoot them and they're refusing rather than to move them to suitable sites in scotland or england they're letting the farmers shoot them not necessarily farmers sorry i should say landowners shoot them uh, when they haven't colonized a lot of areas so the petition is to get them to move problem beavers not shoot them and there's another one which is save swanscombe marshes the swanscombe is a brownfield site one of two sites that have the distinguished jumping spider on and the other one is well it's not quite as under threat as it was but it's in a place where someone's going to want to build on it soon although it's currently owned by sympathetic owners i believe and there's quite a lot of other species there it's a really good site and they want to build a blooming theme park on top of it so this is in north kent i mentioned the e-action so you go to the website and it sends an email to your mp and this is regarding unsustainable driven grouse small shootings which if you listen to our last episode you know all about now and the bird of prey persecution that goes along with it but i'm going to share them all on our feed so do please go and check them out and if you do agree with them please do sign them and share them as well and share them yes that's a good call not much else to say we've passed twenty thousand downloads so thanks very much everybody and i do have one request if people especially if you're listening on apple podcasts which is always good because it bumps us up the chart what would help us greatly is if you enjoy the podcast can you give us a review that'd be great we haven't had any for a few months now Uh, that really helps us with our rankings and whatever and gets us more listeners and stuff like that so anything you can do on that front would be greatly appreciated and other than that it's just where to find us on social media i think on facebook we're uk wildlife podcast twitter is uk wildlife pod and then on instagram it's uk wildlife podcast 
as well. And don't forget, tag us in your pictures on all of the social media. If it's on Twitter and Instagram, use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast. Makes it easier for us to find them. And don't forget, any questions, send them in and we'll be more than happy to try and answer them for you. And we've got a couple of good guests lined up within the next few podcasts. Do come back because it should be getting, well, hopefully not getting interesting. Staying interesting, maybe more interesting. (laughs) Staying interesting. And we've got some really, really good kind of autumnal themed subjects that we might get a little bit geeky over. Oh yeah, we've got one massive one that I don't know how we're going to fit in one episode. It's a whole phylum. There's a clue and it's autumn. Yeah, you might better work that one out. Okay then everybody, thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Yep, take care. Bye. Bye.